So here's what we're going to do. We have done this, uh, I think this will be maybe the fourth time in the life of our church uh, that we've done this, where we have done something that we've called Hot Seat Sunday. You ask the questions, we do our best to provide the answers. We've done them at specific times in the life of our church. I think the last time we did it was after we did a series on the Holy Spirit. So you can imagine if you were around at that point, I think we were at War Memorial Hall actually at that point, and we answered all these questions about the Holy Spirit. And today, uh, the particular emphasis is, is coming out of the series that we've been doing called The Bride. And so if you have questions that you've been like, I want this one answered, we will do our best to answer them, but also make no promises that we'll have a full and complete answer that we might need to go and uh, do some more reading and research. And really, my hope and prayer too is that we're simply modeling something that each of you have the opportunity to do every single week, where you live, work, learn, and play that all of us in some sense are on the hot seat uh, as we live our lives, as we're doing and living out relationship with people who don't know and love Jesus or people that do. And so we hope once again that this can simply be a model of what that looks like. And so your questions will go to 519-803-9600. Please do not text this number after this hour. Uh, just please do not, and this is the hour that you are permitted, or actually over the next uh, 25 minutes, uh, you'll have the opportunity. And so what's going to happen is our questions are going to come in on the screen, and then we're going to do our very best to answer them. So with that, do we have a question? We do. Here it goes. I, I already hate this, you guys. I already hate it, and I haven't even seen the first question. Here's a question. In indigenous communities, elders are recognized for life, for their wisdom and experience. Would this church be interested in this format, which seems more biblical rather than voting people in and out? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. It's, it's a great question. I was actually with a group of pastors this week, and we were talking about our different governance models and uh, the, the positives and benefits in our church, what an elder has the opportunity to do is to serve for the course of two, three-year terms. And after that sixth year, we invite them to take a year sabbatical, so to go off of the board for at least a year. And we feel that that is actually really healthy and good. That would be the seventh year. Every seven years, we actually uh, give the opportunity for our full-time pastoral staff to have a sabbatical. And so we really feel like there's actually good health in the life of a community to have um, a flow of leadership where there's some in and out, but also some consistency. And so I believe, that it, you know, as we look at the scriptures, we're certainly not given an example of when somebody steps out of eldership, but certainly there likely would have been. Um, if you even think about the church in Jerusalem, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it was growing. There would have been uh, some leadership that was raised up there, but then the church was forced to scatter. And so certainly there was likely elders that went into different places. Paul instructs Timothy to raise up elders in his church. Um, and so you can certainly serve as the spiritual leader in your church, regardless of whether or not you're on a board or not. I think that would be fair to say. Um, and so that would be a person that is obviously looked to by others in the community as a spiritual leader. Um, but in the context here, we found it really healthy for a leader to have a season of time where they step out of the board. And if the Lord and the community is calling them back into it, they're certainly welcome to do that. But after they take a year break. Yeah, I would, I would just add, you know, voting can feel very sterile or clinical or something. But it's, it actually, we think, serves a really important spiritual function, which is preserving this idea called the priesthood of all believers 
which is this idea that, that we believe that every uh, follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, and when you become a member of this church, you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm committed to the life and flourishing of Church of the City. And so that's why members have the opportunity to vote on elders, because we're saying, hey, we believe collectively that uh, each person should have a, a voice in this. So it ends up in a vote, which to some people feels kind of like very political or something, but in reality it's trying to preserve that sort of spiritual idea that we all have the Holy Spirit and should be able to speak into that process of selecting the leaders over us. And if you wanted to see a passage where we kind of see this idea, it's, it would be Acts 6. Now this, most people would say that this kind of points to um, the selection of deacons, that these men were sort of serving, serving as deacons. Um, I believe this is Peter speaking, and he says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Um, the idea being that sort of the community selected those people to, to lead over them. So that's, again, it's going to be very hard to give what I, a full answer in the, in the truest sense, but that's mm -hmm. a stab at it. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Next one. What systems of accountability are in place for the leadership of this church? I would say right off the top, there's an accountability uh, to one another. Um, we meet together bi-weekly, Tuesday morning, 6.30 a.m. for an hour and a half. That's elders. Elders. Yep. And uh, what that time is... We care for our community during that time. We have moments and times of prayer to care and uh, have concern for each other. Um, as far as our elders, we anticipate and expect all of our elders are in the life of a missional community and in a DNA environment where there's other men in the church that are inviting them, calling them to account, inviting them into deeper dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Um, for Spencer and I, as leadership in the church, as staff, we have a contract that has a whole host of expectations for us um, as it relates to not only serving as pastors in the church, but also um, as it relates to uh, appropriate conduct in the life of our community and what that looks like. Uh, we've all tragically seen so many examples, especially in the news, uh, over the last few years of, of leadership uh, not following um, Christ in their personal lives. And so uh, I think we do our best uh, in, in having those environments for elders to share personally, but then also for uh, accountability uh, for those of us that are specifically hired, if you want to speak more to that. Sure. M Matt Klein-Geltink and I just joined together in a new missional community. Some of you in this room are part of that. Um, and we just had our first DNA as men, and we, we were very clear, I hope, with the guys. Um, we attempted to be clear to say, hey, just because we're leaders in this church doesn't mean that you can't ask us tough questions or call us to account. In fact, we really need that. Um, and so, yes, there's certainly the, the sort of personal accountability in that sense. But that would also be another function of, of our denomination. Um, the, the Historically, Baptists don't have quite as, as uh, strong or sort of rigid accountability structures as you might find in other denominations. But that's a function of ordination. You know, a, a group of Baptist churches coming together in the denomination to say, yes, we believe this, this person is qualified for ministry. Um, and then there is, you know, again, not as strongly as in some other denominations, but there are accountability uh, structures that sort of come as part of being uh, a part of the, the denomination that we're in. 
Mm -hmm. Those would be a couple other things. Yeah, I may remember the week that I did a teaching on what the church believes, and I talked about the benefits of denominations to this point, especially doctrinal accountability for a church. It's a wider body of believers that we submit to. We're part of a denomination that has over 500 churches across Canada. Um, and so we feel that that is actually a really positive uh, benefit for, for being part of a denominational body, is the accountability it provides. Next question. Another, another great one. That was awesome. If Christianity does not protect you from suffering, and in fact can invite more suffering into your life, how can God be good for you? People are just going for like the ultimate and metaphysical questions here. Mm-hmm. Love it. You know, I just started a book um, last night. It's called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, excellent little book, and she talks about five sayings that we'll oftentimes see on lawn signs, and uh, the first saying that she addresses is Black Lives Matter, and something that we do not consider very often is the religious faith of those that were slaves, and you might ask this question to a person of color um, in the slave trade and say, what is, what is good for you about God? Uh, many times, if you think about the context of someone in slavery, they were also, they were following Christ, and the people that were their masters claimed to also be following Christ and using the same religion to justify the, the, the slavery that they were uh, um, enforcing upon other people. And one thing I would imagine, and uh, learning more about in, as far as that context, is the reality of the next life. And many of these individuals recognize, yes, this life is suffering. We're joining in with Christ as we suffer. But in the next life, I will not suffer. And Christ promises that when he returns, he will take away all tears, pain, sadness. And there will be justice brought against those who have acted unjustly uh, towards me. And so certainly there is also this modern idea that what we do here in this life has to be of some benefit to us. And I believe there's lots of spiritual benefits and blessings from following Christ. Um, But there is the marginalization and there is suffering that we experience and in a greater extent. Spencer, do you want to add anything to what I've shared there? Um, I say this, I hope, with... uh, yeah, humility and, and uh, anybody who claims that there's not mystery contained in, in, in this question or in any answer to this question is, is kidding themselves. But I would, the one thing I would add to, to Matt's answer is, um, and again, I say this humbly, God makes no claim to, you know, the, the, God's purpose is not to be good for us. Um, I believe that our, our good is ultimately found in God. Um, and I think the scriptures testify to that. But I think that that sort of supposition that, you know, I need to know that God is good for me, um, you know, conclusively before, uh, you know, I take any steps of faith, um, will, will create challenges for you in sort of your spiritual growth. If God exists and he is God, then he can make ultimate claims over us as his creatures. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's up to us to, to trust. I believe our ultimate good is found in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as Matt said, sometimes that only works out in, um, in sort of the eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I suppose you could also get into in this question around the subjectivity of what is good for you, because what is good for you might not be good for somebody else. It's why we hold to absolute truth, that there must be one absolute way, or else you're in the midst of like, well, this is true for me, that it, but then they can be contradicting. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's a great, great question. Next one. First Baptist Church has now affirmed homosexuality and leadership roles. Church of the City is Baptist. Do individual churches set their own standards? So, um, without getting too far into the weeds here, some of you may have seen this uh, in the news. Um, there are a number of different Baptist denominations in Canada, um, but the two biggest uh, would be the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, which we are a part of, and the... Um, I forget what the convention the, Baptist. The of convention Ontario Baptist. Call, it's called different places in yeah. where you go in the country, but here in, in Ontario and Quebec, it's called the CBOQ, the Convention Baptist of Ontario and Quebec. Um, the the fellowship was actually began um, because uh, certain leaders in uh, the CBOQ, it wasn't called that at the time, but saw some troubling sort of moves um, in sort of a, a progressive direction. And so that was sort of the birth of the fellowship. Um, and I think because of that, the fellowship has, while still being Baptists, because as we already said, Baptists um, are different than other denominations that sort of, you know, in another denomination, um, Matt or I would, could just be assigned to a different church. Um, so Baptists certainly don't, the denomination doesn't exert that much control over the individual churches. But I think because of the sort of nature of the founding of the fellowship, um, our denomination has, has held pretty, uh, has always um, kept a close eye on sort of are we holding to sort of traditional um, uh, teachings on the Christian faith, whereas um, I think the CBOQ uh, is certainly seeing a lot more diversity of, of how churches choose to live things out, um, which, you know, we could talk all day if that's a, a, a good move for the denomination to take. I think it creates some, some, some uh, room for difficulty when you have churches in, in the same denomination that see things like wildly differently. Um, but First Baptist Church would be a part of that other Baptist denomination, the, the CBOQ. Um, and so again, the fellowship would be a little bit more clear and upfront um, about sort of some of, the, some of the, the positions on some of these things right now. That's sort of yeah, I would say churches in the fellow, in Baptist churches typically are autonomous, but they're part of a fellowship. So what that means is that they can change their views, but then what, if they change their views, then they're at odds with their denomination. And then typically what happens is the denomination follows up with them and says, do you realize that you're at odds with our position held as a denomination? And at that point, typically they're asked to either uh, change their view to be more in line with the denomination or to choose to no longer be connected to it. And so the CBOQ, as I'm aware, through some email communication this week, is going to be following up in this particular case with First Baptist uh, Church as, as they have found out about it. Typically, in, in this sort of polity or autonomy, the church, the denominations, ends up being a bit more reactionary than proactive in setting the standard. They become reactive in their finding out about their churches and then doing some, some follow-up. Um, yeah, I mean, we could talk a lot more about... Um, uh, homosexuality and, and affirmation and all those sorts of things, but we'll have to do that another day as we don't have time. Next question. Where does Church of the City stand on predestination or freedom of choice? Does this have an effect on outreach? 
So I would say broadly in our leadership, we lean uh, to a more reformed position. What do we mean by that? Well, there's a lot of different things in the reform position or predestination position. We believe in a God-centric view of salvation, uh, that God is at the center of our salvation as the primary mover, but there's obviously a lot of mystery in how exactly that happens. And so we very much believe also the command of the scriptures to go and to make disciples, to evangelize, and that who knows, God in the process of that sharing of the good news can use that as a vehicle for transformed and for uh, changed lives. Um, I am convinced of more of a reformed or uh, view of predestination through the scriptures. They've convinced me of that more so um, than not, but there are also examples in the scriptures where it would seem there is more of a, uh, a free choice, if you could say. But I would say that one of the things that has convinced me more is just, I think, at times the impossibility of trusting Christ. Um, you know, using this example, imagine outside of our city, Christ is crucified, he's hanging on the cross, and you take your average neighbor to Jesus hanging on the cross, and you say, this is where I put all my hope and my faith and in his resurrection. I mean, my neighbor's going to laugh at me and say, that's a bunch of bogus. And so, uh, for, for true saving faith over the course of a life, I believe that there must be this movement of God regularly in my life to draw myself back to him. Is there anything you want to add there, Spence? Yeah, again, we could do a whole series on this, so we're not going to be able to give a, a, a long answer. Um, but yeah, I would agree with Matt. We sort of lean in a, in a more reformed position. Um, and some people think, well, doesn't that sort of hinder evangelism? If we believe that you know, God has um, elected certain people to be saved, and they're just going to be saved, um, they're just going to be saved. So why do we sort of need to participate? Um, and I think the scriptures, you know, again, this is one of those sort of uh, tensions that is in the scripture that sort of creates this mystery, um, but passages like Romans uh, ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Um, so that's kind of like a, a drumbeat for us. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and I actually think that a reformed position can, can give you... Um, Maybe you said this. I was sort of in my, lost in my own head as you were answering, so apologies if I'm saying the exact same thing as Matt. Um, I actually think it creates some, some hope and some optimism for evangelism because, f- friends, on a purely human level, I didn't know you were speaking this a little bit, I struggle, you know, living in a city as secular as Guelph to think, man, like, are my neighbors ever going to hear this? Are they ever going to even consider this? But if I believe that God is drawing people to himself— um, then I can be a part of that, and I can be optimistic that, yes, some people are, are going to turn the message away, but some people are going to come, uh, and some people are going to hear it, and it's going to fall on soft soil, um, and, and they'll be saved. But I, I am called to play a part in that nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So. I remember hearing someone, it was, a, you know, it doesn't get into all the nuances of the debate, but they were saying, you know, live as an Arminian, sleep as a Calvinist. Um, so during the day when you're awake, go about sharing the gospel as often and as generously as you can. But when you go to sleep, remember that it's God that, that waters and grows and, and take great hope in that. Next one. 
How has your view and expectation of the missional community model changed throughout the years? Are there aspects of the model that you think are less optimal for church members than the traditional church structure? I can be strange to pawn this one off on that. Um, this is a great question. Um, I think, Matt and I talk about this often, I think we still uh, believe in the, um, something I heard in the Soma family a, a number of uh, years ago, um, which, which is sort of this network of churches that are oriented around missional communities as we are. Um, it was said about Sunday mornings. Somebody said, um, Sunday mornings are essential, but they're not enough. Uh, speaking to that idea that, you know, if, we're just, if you're just a follower of Jesus and you come every Sunday, then, you know, that, that's the, 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 the culmination of the Christian life. And they were saying, no, Sundays are essential, you know, this time, but they're not enough. And thus, missional communities provide sort of this bigger picture of everyday discipleship. Um, I would almost say the same now of missional communities. Um, you know, that, that I, I, I see something essential in them that can take vastly different forms, um, which is, I think, a significant area of change and growth for us, is that no longer do we say a missional community has to, you know, have a meal together once a week and have, be meeting in their DNAs uh, once a week. You know, the ways that that can look is, is vastly different from community to community. I still think there's something essential contained in there, um, uh, but it's, it's, it's not enough. Sundays matter. Um, you know, uh, there's opportunities for equipping the whole church um, in, in a certain area that's difficult to do through a missional community. Um, so, yeah, I've had people say who have been around Church and City for a long time, they've asked, like, you know, coming out of the pandemic, like, are we sort of moving away from missional communities? And I would say not at all. Um, not at all. But like these vocational communities are a great example of something that I don't think a missional community can do. What I mean by that is, after the service, we're going to have medical professionals gathered together, encouraging one another, considering what it means to follow Jesus in the medical profession. If I'm in a missional community with a nurse, you know, I throw up when I see blood, you know, so like I, I, I can encourage somebody, um, I, I, can, I, can, I can pray for them, um, you know, I, I can be there when they've had a, a tough week, but in terms of thinking about how to sort of uniquely uh, show and share the gospel in a hospital, I, I'm not going to be of much help. You You're know? probably going to be like, well, this blood's reminding me of Jesus' blood that's been shed yeah. for you. <laughs> Jesus loves you. <laughs> you know, I need to, need to run out of the room. Um, but vocational communities are a great example of something that an, a missional community just can't do. Um, you know, sort of that encouragement of people in the same field, asking the right questions. Um, and I, but I think a number of years ago we would have said, no, like a missional community is, is all you need. Um, whereas now we see that there are unique moments or opportunities that, uh, things that can come alongside and run in parallel to missional communities. Yeah, I would, I would say uh, our missional communities used to be founded and still are on our identities as a family of God missionaries and disciples of Jesus. Back in the fall, uh, I came out of sabbatical, and I realized that you could put the check mark of like, I'm in a missional community, so therefore, yay. We changed our primary values to encounter formation and mission to show what we hope comes from being part of a missional community, which is that the environment of a missional community will help you encounter God, 
You'll be formed as a disciple of Jesus, learning the things that Jesus did, listening to his teachings, obeying them, going and doing the same. And then mission is being out on mission. That's what missional communities were always intended to do. Um, I'm interested in this word optimal. If, if optimal means convenient, certainly missional communities are not convenient. But not a lot as it relates to life uh, in a community over the long haul is very convenient. But Jesus does certainly not invite us to convenience. Uh, he invites us to die. Um, and so uh, my missional community is made up of about four people that do shift work. It is not optimal. It is very difficult to arrange opportunities for us to be together when we're all there. But we're given the opportunity to continue to pursue relationship with each other, to call each other to greater obedience and surrender to Jesus Christ, and then try to figure out a way that we get out on his mission in this world together. And it's very difficult, but I believe, both through my experience with it, that it's an incredible place to grow and to follow Jesus. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, that... Uh, the model from the very beginning is followers of Jesus with other followers of Jesus, following Jesus with Jesus, right? Call that a missional community, call that a community group, call that a, hey, hub time, like whatever you want to call it, call it what you want. We've used the term missional community because I think there's a, a benefit to accountability in the name connected to what you're doing. And if it's just a community, just call it a community. But if it's a group that we hope will eventually become a missional outpost of the kingdom of God to the places where we live, work, learn, and play and a system of accountability for greater gospel sharing, then that's a great term. I love the example of Matt's group, and I use it often because, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but I think, you know, three or four or five years ago, we would have looked at your missional community and said, well, that's not a real missional community because, you know, they only get together sort of once a month. And, and so because of all this shift work, unless this has changed, you know, Matt's missional community will look at the, the month and say, okay, when, are, when can we all be together? Like, let's spend a few hours in a park or let's like have a, a nice meal and sort of just hang out together. Mm -hmm. um, and a number of years ago, we would have said, well, they're not meeting enough. So they're not a real missional community. Um, but that's just, a, they're a great example of, um, the fact that sort of what a missional community is, that the, the boundaries around that have never been more generous. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so often when I talk to somebody and they say, yeah, I just, I can't do that. Usually as we have a conversation, I discover like, oh, well, you can. You just can't be in one of these groups that wants to meet together, you know, a couple times a week. And for the MCs that, that want to do that, like, great, we, we celebrate that. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that won't be the case for all of them, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. How has your view, uh, there seems to be a growing divide in the body of churches, those churches that are liberal and those who are conservative. How do we deal with such a divide? Well, first I'd invite the question, what does unity in the New Testament mean? Because everyone says we all need to be unified. We're one. Jesus prayed for unity and oneness. So we have to ask the question, well, what do we mean by unity? That ever, anybody that says I'm a Christian is automatically means that they're a Christian and that, hey, we have this church and so automatically we're a church. Unity in the New Testament is around doctrine, if we're being quite honest. Like if you look at Romans, if you look at these different letters written to these churches, what is Paul primarily instructing them on? He's, he's instructing them on doctrine that leads to practice and to church life. And he was very specific about what to do when someone is living outside the bounds of uh, religious or uh, obedience to Jesus and surrender to Christ. And so I think what we have to do is to pursue, as we talked about in the week, on what we believe, on what are the essentials? 
what, what makes and what, has, what is orthodox Christian faith? We have to be honest about that. Um, and therefore, we can say, okay, beyond that, once we get into secondary doctrine, we can say, okay, you have a different view on this than we do. You have a different view on this than we do. But we still believe that salvation is found in Jesus, that we can trust the Bible as the authority, as the inspired word of God, that there are miracles that happen in the scriptures and that they are true. Like we can start going down those lines and that should not be confusing as far as some of those basics because they're things that Christians have believed since the time of Jesus. And so we can hold fast to those things. As those things change, I think what we have to realize is that there is going to be a more of a divide between things. Because when we get to the specifics about what people believe, I would even say that Paul encourages a division. Um, because what we're not unified on is the tenets. Like if you're having a conversation with someone and you say, well, let's study the scriptures together and figure out what they say. And they say, yeah. I have a different view on the scriptures that, yes, it says that there, but I believe we've evolved since then, and now we can just ask the Holy Spirit to tell us what it means and, well, you know, whatever we want it to mean. Like, I'm not going to be able to have a conversation with somebody because at that point, we're standing on different foundation points, right? So unity in the scriptures is around, real, it's around Christ, but it's around doctrine, belief about Christ, and from there. It was interesting, again, I said that I was at a gathering of pastors the other day, and sitting around that table are those with different views on secondary issues of theology, but I've never felt closer to those pastors than I do now because of the, 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 the progressive or the liberal push that's going on in churches around us. And I, I even said to Andrea um, on Thursday, I said, you know, I've never felt closer with these, with these other pastors because of what's going on. We need to hold each other closer than we ever have before. And I think ultimately then that is a really good thing. Yeah, I, I, there's sort of the base level of unity, which is like we can sort of shake hands, hug one another, and, and agree like Jesus is Lord. I, I remember a conversation with uh, a, a friend who was, a, this was years ago, was a part of a, another sort of Christ, Christian t- tradition. I won't say what it was, but we were amongst a whole bunch of people, some who were followers of Jesus, some who weren't. Um, this is punishment. Matt said I was cheating by bringing up notes. Hey, you said um, you were cheating. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so, and anyways, I said, you know, we were amongst some people who were, were followers of Jesus, some who weren't, and I said, well, you know, at least like, I was talking to this friend, um, I said, at least like, you know, we can say at the end of the day that like, we're on the same team, you know, Jesus is Lord, and he said, mm, we're not on the same team. <laughs> and that, that to me felt, that saddened me you know, because um, we would agree that Jesus is Lord. But that's sort of like the base level of unity. I would totally agree with Matt that when it comes to sort of working in partnership or um, at a certain point, if we can't agree that the scriptures are the word of God, that they're authoritative, um, then it's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard to sort of be too closely aligned because, you know, if we agree that the scriptures are authoritative, but, you know, you're putting together the pictures of the, the, the picture that the scriptures paint and arriving at a di- slightly different place than I am, like, that's okay with me. But if, if we disagree that we can trust the Bible, um, then, then we're going to have a hard time sort of mm-hmm. getting any further than that, I think. But. Yeah, I'll do one more. I think that's all we have time for, unfortunately. Biblically, we see the early church gather in small groups where there is community, worship, prayer, and edification of each other's faith. It would seem that the Western church has invented lecture teachings and a different structure for gathering as a church than what we see with the early church. What are your thoughts on this? Um, 
I don't want to be, be too controversial, but don't when, do it then. Just when, don't do it. And, and so I would invite, if this, is, this is, if this is your question, but a lot of times we make assumptions when we use the word biblically. We're like, well, biblically. And I think what we have to do is go, what did we mean by that term? And what in the Bible is prescriptive and what in the Bible is descriptive? What I mean by that, where in the scriptures is it describing a context and a situation? And where is it saying prescriptive, this is what you are to do based on the, the fact of the gospel and, and, and the doctrine that we hold to be true. So when we look at the New Testament church, I think we could have lots of conversation about the ways in which they gathered. Um, I think you would find there are lecture-style teachings. I mean, we see Paul, he's doing in the Areopagus. We have in Acts, we also look at, uh, we read that Solomon's portico, the believers were meeting there, and that Peter was presenting. I would assume that was a presentation format. Certainly the church scattered and had other environments. Um, and so I, I, what I've come to believe is that teaching is still really valuable uh, because if, well, I, I don't want to say that, but what I would say is we need to be instructed, but this cannot be the primary edification for your walk with Jesus. And if this is, you're not going to be growing with Christ, quite frankly. Like if, if, if my spiritual walk or Spence's spiritual walk or anyone else's is the basis for your walk with Jesus, good luck, okay? But that doesn't mean that this is therefore not valuable. I think it is. I think as we think about the church growing together, hearing the same things, being instructed, we need better, I think, solid teaching generally. Um, but this certainly, and that, that has never been the case for us, is that this is the best thing. Like when I was on sabbatical a few weeks ago, I came back just deeply convicted because I listened to a lot of great sermons, but that wasn't the most meaningful thing that I did or the time that I spent. It was my own time alone with Jesus that was the most valuable thing. And so what I needed to learn is how to do that better. But that doesn't mean then, well, then do away with the lecture teachings, because I still need those as well. Yeah, I, w I would agree with what Matt said. You know, those of us, particularly those of us in ministry, wish that the New Testament was a lot more prescriptive about what the church ought to look like. But so much of it is just descriptions of how it looked in different cities, and, and those vary wildly, right? It talks at times about the church in Jerusalem. We get the sense of a large gathering of believers, but then right on the other end of the spectrum, it talks about the church gathered in so-and-so's house, right, in some of the greetings or the closes of, of Paul's letters. Um, so we get the sense that there was lots of different things happening. Um, I would completely agree with Matt that uh, the sermon is not the be-all and end-all, um, and, uh, I mean, that's part of why, in, in, I'd say, in the coming months, um, we're probably, you'll probably see more faces up on the stage um, um, teaching in some form or another because, you know, the New Testament never talks about the sermon. Um, we believe that the sermon could be a number of different things that the New Testament does talk about, a word of exhortation or a word of wisdom. Um, but, yes, the sermon is, is not some sort of uh, a be-all and end-all. But um, that's why, again, that we see something significant about missional communities, because we don't believe that Sundays are the be-all and end-all. Again, they are essential, but they're not enough. Um, so, yes, a, a short answer to... A yeah, I hope what you'll also come to see in the life of our church is, like, even a rhythm of, like, the, the summer, where we're like, hey, let's do every other week. That's hopefully a, a very practical example of another way that we see the church can gather is in a park, enjoying one another's company. Uh, whereas in some churches, you'd be like, we need our sermon. 
We're saying, no, you don't, you don't need it. Certainly, it's an, it's an opportunity, but you don't need it in that sense. Um, and so, yeah. If there are other questions that we didn't get to that you would like answered, you can email either matt at churchofthecity.ca, spencer at churchofthecity.ca. You could go elders at churchofthecity.ca. You could just put anything in front of that churchofthecity.ca. Not saying you'll get your questions answered, but give it a shot. Um, Let's take a moment to uh, pray, and our team will come and lead us in in a final uh, bridge. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity as your uh, children. God, we are adopted into your family. You are our Father, and so we are grateful for this opportunity. Thank you, God, that we could do this, a little bit of a different format, uh, hopefully engaging uh, differently. Uh, what it looks like to to be your church and, and to do. Yeah, this isn't a sermon format, Lord Jesus. This is leaning in, Lord Jesus, to the questions that maybe we've been thinking about over the last little while. And so we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.